Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Uriah St. Gist. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the joy of knowing you. Father, we thank you for the joy of salvation. We thank you, Lord, for your word that lays it all out for us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that teaches us and guides us and turns our minds from the physical, the earthly, towards the spiritual and the heavenly, Father. And help us to remember that our goal, like we sang a few moments ago, we are marching to Zion. This world is not our home. And so, Lord, as we come to your word, we pray for your anointing. Pray for the anointing of uh, your Holy Spirit upon the words that have been prepared, the word that will go out, and the word that is heard. And Lord, I pray that we all may not look at ourselves in the mirror and walk away, but we may run to Jesus and ask him for the things that we need. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Let all God's people say, Amen. The message um, this morning is actually a two-part message um, on the seven last plagues, the seven last plagues. Now, I have a suspicion that the devil did not or does not want me to present this message, but he's a bit defeated I have learned that in God's work, there must always be redundancy because um, whatever, you know, they say anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Um, That's the devil. That's how he operates. Um, But thank God for redundancy. I have um, this PowerPoint to present to you. Uh, There's one slide that I'm missing um, with a, a picture. And the last time I preached this sermon nine months ago, um, I'm told of a, of a hymn writer, I think his name is Ira Sankey, and I believe he was a very prolific hymn writer, and he would do something very interesting. When the preacher is preaching, he's sitting there in the pew, and before the sermon is over, he has written a hymn, which he would, at the end of the sermon, sing as an appeal song. And I've seen it happen somewhat of a show in some worship services while the preacher is preaching there's an artist drawing the great theme of the sermon and the last time I preached this sermon in October last year at the end of this it was on zoom at the end of the sermon something very interesting and very special happened a nine-year-old girl showed me a picture that's the slide that's missing you know it's just I regret um, by the way next Sabbath I'll have it up Um, because this is part one. Not next time, but the next time I preach, I'll have it up, Um, which is about a month from now. While I was preaching on this sermon, she drew a picture of the plagues. A nine-year-old girl, nine-year-old Hannah, and the detail is just so amazing. 
it will blow your mind that someone at that age could actually paint such a detailed picture during the sermon. Um, and probably that's a plug for not preaching too short, but preaching a little bit long. Just give the kids an opportunity to. <laughs> so if there's anyone who feels so inspired, please do so. <laughs> Let's get going with the message. And I've given it a subtitle, as you can see, Peace in the Midst of the Storm. The book of Revelation is one of the books in the Bible that gains a lot of attention, even from non-church-going people, non-Adventists, non-Christians, for the reason that it seems to be very mysterious. It, it has some mysterious uh, symbols. Some, some people would say some, some creepy, um, blood-curling um, images are there of red dragons and ten-horned beasts. And one that people find very amazing, it has become very famous, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and also the seven last plagues. People are drawn to this one because they feel that if these are the seven last plagues, then that means this is the end. So everyone wants to know what are the seven last plagues and when will they fall? So this is why it's important. But for us as Seventh-day Adventists, students of the Bible, gifted and blessed with the spirit of prophecy, the interpretation and the understanding of the book of Revelation, particularly those parts of Revelation dealing with last day events are very important to us or should be very important to us, especially in the times that we live in. Do you agree? If you agree, say amen. Amen. So what is... The message, what is the, these seven last plagues? What are they? When will they fall? What is the message, most importantly, God is trying to communicate to us, to you who have come to church today? With all what's going on in your lives, why you, the singing wasn't that really roof lifting. What is the message? We must... Before we can understand the seven last plagues, believe it or not, understand the first ten plagues which are found in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Now, why, may you ask, why is that so, Pastor? Why do we need to study the first plagues before we study the last plagues? Well, the book of Revelation, as you may know, is encoded that means it is written with symbols and these symbols would convey a particular message now uh, to understand these symbols or to unlock the meaning of those symbols you need to understand and read and go to the great themes of the old testament are you with me still if you are say amen so to understand revelation revelation is encoded it seems mysterious, but they are codes. And the, the keys to unlock those codes are found 
in the Old Testament themes, such as the sanctuary, which is a very important grand theme of the Old Testament and is also featured heavily in the book of Revelation. But there is another theme, which is the journey of the children of Israel and how God led them from bondage into freedom and from captivity into the promised land. We must take inspiration from these great themes in our lives today. They are old. They are, you might say, old, Old Testament, outdated, done away with. But there's a song which we sing which I love. Ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. Bible is not old. It's not outdated. It is very relevant to the times that we are living in right now. And if you just had to look at, forget COVID, just in this year so far with floodings up north, with food shortages. I went to the supermarket this week and I'm seeing whole sections empty. Fuel prices going through the roof. This must be taking its toll on people's everyday lives. And don't think that because you're a child of God, you're a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, that you're immune. I have a suspicion that all of us are impacted and Although the floods earlier this year were up north, right in our location, we were impacted with heavy rains and flooding. And so the Bible helps us to get through these difficulties that we face uh, in our lives today. Because as we read the story of the Old Testament, we notice that it is... uh, gives us the account, the historical account of the children of Israel, God's people. Somebody says it is a book of history, which is his story, God's story of how ordinary people just like you and me faced life's challenges, whether those challenges were death, the death of their loved ones, whether these challenges were hunger and famine, whether these challenges were childlessness, whether these challenges were challenges where they had to trust God and exhibit faith, whether these challenges were the fear of attacks from the enemy, whether these um, challenges were homelessness, sickness, and disease, or oppression. It's all there. Ordinary people facing these challenges and how a great and loving God who is not far away, who is not powerless, but comes into their lives and makes a difference. Are you still with me? If you're still with me, say amen. He is with them through their challenges. He does not take away their challenges. He does not uh, uh, preserve them from challenges. He says, when you walk through the fire, when you walk through the flood, I will be with you. doesn't say there will be no floods or fires. But when they come, I am there with you. And so if you want to make sense of your life or the world around you, if you want inner peace, if you want hope, then read the Bible story. Revelation was written mainly to a Jewish audience. Most of the church were Jews converted to Christianity, but they were under Roman occupancy. They were under Roman bondage. They were persecuted by the Romans. They were oppressed by the government. 
Do you see why the book of Revelation is important in these last days? And why the seven last plagues are important? This message, whatever its meaning is, which we will uncover, John gave in the book of Revelation. He wrote it out specifically because it was relevant to the church in his time. And so if we can discover what the relevance was to the early Christian church when John was writing this in Revelation, then we can discover the relevance, the meaning, and the message to the church in the last days. And we will get there eventually, but not today. John the Revelator wrote the book of Revelation, not John the Baptist, as some people think. He was one of the disciples of Jesus. Why did he write in symbols? Well, John was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. It is believed that he was in his late teens when he was with Jesus, when Jesus was here on earth. Not only was he the youngest disciple, he was the last of the disciples to die. And so when he was writing Revelation, it's believed that he was in his 90s. And can you imagine what this would do to the church, the last of the 12 disciples to be alive? Every church would want him to come to preach in their church. And people would have flocked hundreds of miles walking to hear John tell of the stories of Jesus, what it was like in the boat, uh, seeing Peter walk on the water, what it was like seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, what it was like feeding the 5,000. You know, someone who was there, this would have given the church great encouragement. It would have given them great hope in the face of the persecution that they were facing because of the Romans. And as we have said before, the Romans tried to defeat Christianity by persecuting and by killing Christians. That didn't work. The more Christians were slaughtered, the more they grew. And one historian described it this way. The blood of the martyrs, Christian martyrs, became as seed for the church. The more the Romans spilled Christian blood, the blood fell and it became like seeds. New Christians grew up. That's why Jesus says, you are blessed when you are persecuted. For my sake. It does something. It causes a prosperity. Whether physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever it may be. When the child of God can trust in Jesus. And ride the waves of persecution with that inner peace that only comes from Jesus himself. There is a blessing in it. And so to kill John would have not only not done any damage to the church, it would have actually caused the church to be strengthened. So the Romans decided, let's silence him by banishing him to a little island where he could not be visible and have any impact to the church. And so he began to write, begins to write this book of Revelation, a letter to the churches to tell the churches, be encouraged God is still in control and God will prevail. 
But if he writes it that way, the censors, the Roman soldiers would see this stuff and shred it to pieces. So he writes it in this mysterious, symbolic way that if you read it and forget that you're a Christian, forget that you're a Seventh-day Adventist, forget that you understand Revelation and read this like someone who's reading this for the first time, you would think that these are the rantings and ravings of a madman. And so they said, ah, let him do whatever he wants with it. And it goes out. But the church could understand because most of them were Jews and they would have understood the Old Testament. So the moment they are reading in Revelation about plagues, where do you think they would go to in their minds? The book of Exodus. And that's where we want to go to this morning. Now, I have a little bit of a graphic here. As we study the first plagues, the plagues that fell upon Egypt, we are going to study from Exodus chapter 1 through to Exodus chapter 12. Very quickly. Now, I need you to have your Bibles. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your device, I want you to raise it up in the air for me, please. Very good. Any more? Very good. Because we'll be opening our Bibles today. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7 to 11 is where we begin. Now, these verses we actually read, I think, the last time I was here. So somehow this seems to be a little bit of a continuation of the theme that we have been studying. I think I'll give you the point first, and then we'll read the verse. The first point we discovered, and there are six of them today, is that the context of the first plagues, the first ten plagues falling, was the context of God's people in bondage. Now, if you're a Bible student, you would say, Pastor, I know that already. That's good. That's true. That's good. The context of the first ten plagues falling is that it's not just everyone, but God's people were in what? We're in? It's right up there. Is it too small and you can't see? God's people in what? Bondage. That's right. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 to 11. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who had not known Joseph. He had said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happens in the event of war that they should join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. So Israel, they were in Egypt under Joseph. They were enjoying the land. Um, Joseph dies and the Pharaoh who knew Joseph dies also. And the Israelites are growing. The Egyptians feel threatened and they... Turn them to slaves. 
These are God's people. And we already celebrated verse 12 the last time. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So this is something that you must understand. If you understand the seven, have to understand the seven last plagues. Is that the first plagues, the ten first plagues were given or they fell in the context of God's people being in bondage. Is that clear? If it's clear, let everyone say amen. Clear as mud. (laughs) Point number two. So they are in bondage. What do they do? Chapter two. Switch over to chapter two. And we will read this time verse 23 to 25. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage. And they did what? They cried out. And what happened? Their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So they cried out to God, and God heard their cry. Verse 24 says, so God heard their growing, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So if you're a bit weary, if you're a bit tired, if you're a bit frustrated, whatever it is you might be feeling that's not very positive, you may be groaning, you may be crying, you may be grumbling, you may be whinging, whatever it is, understand that God hears you, that God sees you. He knows what you are growing through. He hears your cry. Psalm 34 verse 17. The Bible says the righteous cry out and the Lord delivers them from not some. I mean if it's some, I mean that's good. At least God does something. It doesn't even say the righteous cry and the Lord delivers them from most. That's more than 50%. That's still good. It doesn't say the righteous cry and the Lord delivers them from 99.9%. But it says the righteous cry and the Lord delivers them from how much? Come on somebody, how much? All of their troubles. So if you are in trouble, it's, it's okay to cry. It's okay to, to cry under the, the burdens that you might be feeling. Because these cries will reach to God in heaven. He's not too far. He's not too busy. He's not uncaring. But he actually cares for you. And when you cry. When God's people cry. God takes special attention. To the sufferings of his people. We must remember this. We're talking about. The seven last plagues. And what it means for God's people. In the end of time, when God's people are in bondage and they are suffering, they are persecuted, they are oppressed, and they cry out, God hears. Then when he hears, what does he do? 
Does he sit there twiddling his thumb? Does he say, well, sorry, there's nothing I can do? He does not only hear. He does not only acknowledge. You know, they are, it's said that, I think Ellen White actually says this, a very beautiful quote that has got me through a number of difficult situations. He says, when you have troubles, I'm paraphrasing, which is not always safe to do. When you have troubles and difficulties, don't go to man because those who can help you are not willing. And those who are willing, they really can't help. But take your burdens, your problems to God because he is both willing and he is able. He's all powerful. There's nothing impossible, the Bible says, for him. So what does God do in this situation? Here is Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, having these people under his thumb. Can God do something? Is God more powerful than Pharaoh or is Pharaoh more powerful than God? What do you think? God is more powerful. And so that gets us to point number three. We're almost halfway there. We're doing good for time. Don't let that fool you. What does God do? God sends 10 plagues on Egypt, on rebellious Egypt, on Pharaoh, the head of the kingdom, the symbol of the nation, in response to their bondage and their crying out. Now, why does he send those plagues. He doesn't just send those plagues all over the world like he did the flood. Why is it that he sent the plagues upon Egypt? Because it was Egypt, it was Pharaoh who was responsible for having his people in bondage. Pharaoh was the one who was hurting his people and God is not just going to stand by and allow anyone to hurt his people. He is going to respond. He's going to rise up. He's going to do something. And so he sends the ten plagues upon Egypt in response to the cries of his people that they uh, gave because of the bondage and the persecution they were receiving from Pharaoh. These ten plagues expand from Exodus chapter 7 through to Revelation chapter 12. And we don't have the time to examine every single one of them individually. And I suspect you know what these plagues are. But let me ask you some pertinent questions concerning these plagues. Did the plagues, by the way, let's, let's rewind. So the children of Israel, where are they? They are in Egypt. And God sends the ten plagues upon which nation, which kingdom, which empire? Upon Egypt. So here's the question. Do the plagues also fall upon the children of Israel or are they spared? That was a trick question, and some of you fell for it. That's why, we, that's why we're having this sermon today. And if you notice, it's more geared like a Bible study. If you said, 
the children of Israel were spared. Let me see you raise your hand. If you said they were not spared and it fell upon them, let me see you raise your hand. Most of you are scared and you don't want to put your hand up. But guess what? Either way, you would have been correct. Some of the plagues actually fell upon all of the children, all children of Israel and Egypt. The first three actually fell on everyone. And from then on, only upon the Egyptians. Now, why was that? That's a very strange thing. Okay? Let us see if we can understand it in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 7. Let's see what's happening here. And the answers will only come from the Bible, nowhere else. Exodus chapter 7, and I believe the verse I want is verse 11. We will read verse 11, verse 22, and then chapter 8, verse 7. Exodus chapter 7, verse 11 is our first verse. And in this, the verses just before this, Moses, um, puts down his rod and it turns into a what? A serpent, a snake. Now there is some imagery that's happening here that we should not bypass. Very important imagery. First of all, God asked. Moses, when he casts his rod down, it doesn't turn into a lamb, it doesn't turn into a lion, it doesn't turn into a goat, it doesn't turn into a dove, it turns into what? A serpent. Why? Why? Do you ever stop to think of why a serpent? What does the serpent symbolize in the Bible? Death, Death yes. The devil, the devil, but to be more specific, it was the devil who came in the form of a serpent to tempt Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that represented, that's why the answer death is correct. It brought sin and death upon humanity. That's why all over the world people are scared of snakes. They see a snake, oh... Some places, as soon as people see a snake, whether it's poisonous or not, they kill it. Because the snake seems to be the enemy of mankind. Because the Bible tells us that it brought death and sin into this world. So God is asking Moses to throw his rod down and it turns into a serpent. But what happens? The magicians of, I think this is what we wanted to read, verse 11. But Pharaoh called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Israel, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. In other words, that's nothing special you can do. Hey, we can do that as well. You might be doing this with the power of your God, but we as magicians... Through the power of Satan, we can do the same thing. So, there's no big deal, no, nothing special about this. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. God wanted to send a clear message to Pharaoh. That's the reason why he sent all these plagues and why they were ten. He could have wiped out Pharaoh and all of Egypt just like that, but he chose to do it this way because God likes drama. I'm putting it in my... God likes to do things in a grand way so that the message is clear. If you do it just in one go, you might miss it. But he lets it draw out so that you can clearly see. And what is the message he was trying to send to Pharaoh is that, Pharaoh, you are not all-powerful. God wanted to show Pharaoh that he was the one that was all-powerful and not Pharaoh. And this is why God asked Moses to go to Pharaoh with the first plague when Pharaoh went to the river Nile. There is a great significance in this. The river Nile was very important to the Egyptians. They actually had, they worshipped the river Nile. There was a god, there were several gods associated with the river Nile. There were gods that were uh, protecting the source of the river Nile. There was a god that was responsible for um, the, the flooding of the river Nile. Because the whole area was a very arid and very dry area. But because of the flowing of the river Nile through this country, the land became fertile. And so they attributed... Follow closely with me now. They attributed their prosperity to the river Nile. Just like Paul says in Romans, they turn themselves away from the creator and they worship the creature, the created. Does that happen in the world today? People have, I mean, I see people tell you, you know, we have people who have shifted away from God. They don't believe in God anymore. But they say things like, the universe is being good to me today. Have you heard this? The universe, really? You have erased God, the creator of the universe, and you have replaced him with objects that he has created. And you are worshipping these objects instead. That's what the Egyptians were doing. God wanted to bring them back into the alignment of worshipping him as creator. And so that's the reason he told Moses to go to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh went down to the river, it is believed that every morning Pharaoh would go down to the river to worship the river God. And God says to Moses, at that time, go and speak to him so that he can know it's not the river God, but Jehovah God, creator God, is the one who is all-powerful. So the first plague falls. And I want us to go down to verse 16. This is what God says to Moses that he should tell Pharaoh. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. That's what it was all about. God was using these 10 plagues as a witness to Pharaoh and the whole entire nation of Egypt so that they can know that it's not their false gods who are true, but it's the true God of the Hebrew people, the God who created the heavens and the earth. All of this was 
a grand evangelistic campaign drawing a whole nation and their leader to the true God of heaven so that they would worship him. Do you see this? And then he says, Behold, I will strike the waters of the river with the rod that is my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. But then you get to verse 22. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. The magicians of Egypt said, so what? We can do this as well. That was the first plague. Water into blood. And by the way, there's another piece of imagery here that we cannot miss. The very first plague, when God wanted to show the Egyptians his power, the very first plague, the very first miracle, the very first plague that he did was to turn the waters of Egypt into blood. Do you remember what Jesus' first miracle was? Jesus was an ordinary carpenter's son, the son of Joseph. That's all people knew him as. But his parents knew that he was the anointed Messiah. And when he is beginning his earthly ministry, when he is about to let the world know that he is God, What is the very first miracle that he performs? He turns what? Water into blood? (laughs) No, into wine. Looks like blood. But you might be saying, Pastor, it doesn't quite fit. But wait a minute. Do you remember the Last Supper? What did Jesus take? He took the wine and he said what? This is my blood. So that wine was a symbol of blood. When God wanted to let Pharaoh know that he was powerful and he was God, he was the true God, the first miracle, the first plague that he sent was water to blood. When Jesus was beginning his earthly ministry to let people know that he was God, the first miracle that he performed was turning water into wine, which was a symbol of his blood. Very clear. But the Egyptians with their magicians said, we can do that as well. No big deal. To be continued. This message was made available by the Dora Creek Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit doracreek.church.
was God of Heaven by Ben Everson. 
Up next, the Galkin Evangelistic team will sing All Creatures of Our God and King. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. All creatures praise the Lord. Thou rushing wind that art so strong, He clouds that sail in heaven along. Thou rising morn in praise rejoice, He lights of evening with the voice. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. All creatures praise the Lord. And all ye men of tender heart, forgiving others, take your part. He who on pain and sorrow bear, praise God and on him cast your care. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Oh, creatures praise the Lord. And all things there create a bus and worship Him in humbleness. Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Does your faith need a boost? Do you think that miracles only happened in Bible times? Think again. Compiled by Remnant Publications, the book Get Ready for a Miracle recounts true stories that prove that when we step out in faith, God displays His power in undeniable ways. Here is our reader, Koval Smith. This story is entitled, Poisoned. Acts chapter 28 verses 8 and 9, says, It happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Afternoon shadows crept across the page as I was reading on my front porch. Thousands of feet above me, thunderheads were blazing with a Friday's setting sun. Where I sat, though, surrounded by mountains, dusk was already falling. Half an hour before, I had opened my medical book to look up an antibiotic dosage for a child with a respiratory infection. The book fell open 
to the section on poisoning and on an impulse I began to read. I did not typically study my medical book on Friday evenings, but somehow today it seemed like the thing to do. Finally, having exhausted the subject and with night coming on quickly, I calculated the antibiotic dosage and headed out to the village. A few minutes later, Ramon came into the house where I was visiting with a friend. John, do you have any sugar, he asked. My son, Deepy, has been poisoned. The main staple of the Alangan diet is a poisonous tuber called Nami. It takes about three days of fermentation and rinsing to extract the poison and render the root edible. Every once in a while, someone is just too hungry to wait and they pay the price in dizziness, vomiting and a terrible headache. The traditional antidote for Nami poison is sugar. Thankfully, no one in remembered history has died from eating under-processed Nami, so I wasn't too worried when Ramon asked for sugar. After getting him some, I headed back to my friend's house. Ten minutes later, Ramon showed up again. Earlier in the day, Deepy had played basketball in the lowlands with a few of the boys who lived in this house. Ramon sat the boys down and interrogated them about what they had eaten that might have poisoned Deepy. I finally came to my senses and realised this was more than a simple case of Nami poisoning. I asked Ramon and he confirmed that Deepy was pretty bad off. I grabbed my medical book and a few drugs and took off running for Ramon's house. Cooking fire smoke stung my eyes as I climbed into the little house. A single tin can lamp hung from the rafters, dimly illuminating the chaos below. Half the village was crammed into the house. Fifty or so of the boldest were close around the rope hammock Dippy was lying in, offering advice and massaging his limbs. Someone was trying to force dampened sugar into his mouth and a dish of charcoal water sat under his hammock. As I got closer, I could see that Deepy's eyes were mostly closed and black charcoal drool was running down his chin. I immediately checked his ABCs, airway, breathing and circulation. As soon as I was certain he was stable for the moment, I asked to pray. Father, I begged, please spare Deepy's life. Please remember his father's faithful service to you and don't let him lose his son now. Please give us the wisdom to treat Deepy. You alone understand all that is going on here. So we ask these things according to your will and in Jesus' name. I continued to assess Deepy. He was unconscious. His pulse and respirations were slow. His eyes were rolled back in his head and his pupils were fully dilated and unresponsive to light. There was no fever, muscle spasm, stiffness or any other obvious clue as to the cause of his condition. Onset of symptoms had been sudden. He had asked for water and when his brother brought him a jug, his hand had shaken violently as he reached for it. Unable to take a drink, he had fallen back into the hammock. 
unresponsive. My book recommended taking a case like this to a hospital right away. But I couldn't find Raman. He had disappeared as soon as I had left for his house. And I knew no one would let me take Deepy out without his approval. Besides, Deepy likely would not live long enough to get to the hospital on the far end of the island. We would have to do what we could for him here in the village. Short on ideas, I tried to convince the people surrounding Deepy to give him more charcoal along with the sugar. I knew it was not a good idea to give anything orally to an unconscious person, but there was no way on earth I would be able to convince the villagers to stop. Anyway, he was automatically spitting everything back out. His pulse was slowly weakening, and soon I was having a hard time finding it. Deepi was almost dead. I learned later that Ramon, knowing there was nothing more he could do for his son, had made his way to the church, fallen on his knees, and begged God to preserve Deepi's life. Father, he prayed, please save my son. I give him to you. Even if it is not your will to heal Deepi, I surrender him to you. Please accept him into your kingdom. Please, Father, may I see him again in the resurrection. As Ramon prayed this prayer, I sat alone in the back of the house. Aside from a miracle, it was just a matter of time. With nothing else left to do, I decided to reread the poison section in my medical book. The house was noisy, my mind was racing, and I was having difficulty focusing. But since I had just read this section carefully an hour or so before, I realised that the book described only one poison that remotely resembled Deepi's symptoms. The book said that, short of taking him to an advanced hospital, which doesn't exist on our island, the only thing that might help with this type of poison was spraying a bit of insecticide on a cloth and holding it under the patient's nose for him to breathe. Apparently, many insecticides contain compounds similar to the antidote for this particular poison. I had never heard of such a crazy treatment and I was afraid the villagers would run me out of town if I tried it. But anything was worth a shot. I found a man who had a bit of insecticide powder for his crops. I sprinkled some on a dampened piece of fabric and held it up to Deepy's nose. After about two minutes, Deepy took a long, rasping breath. It didn't sound like a good sign, so I took the insecticide away from his nose and sat down again. Oh, well, I thought it was worth a try. Deepy, Deepy, can you hear me? The words broke through my thoughts. It had been about a minute since I had tried the insecticide. I jumped up and ran to the hammock. There was no obvious sign of improvement, but when I shined the light into Deepy's eyes, his pupils immediately contracted down to almost normal size. Within five minutes, he began to move his limbs and swallow. With prayers of thanksgiving, we made our way home. 
wondering at the strange and wonderful ways God sometimes chooses to work. The next morning, Deepy's mental function was still a little slow and he was extremely weak, but he was improving. When I saw him again a few days later, he was completely back to normal. Criminals often use the particular poison Deepy likely ingested. This is our best guess about what happened. DB is a talented basketball player, and earlier that afternoon he had been playing in the lowlands. Between games, when DP went off to buy snacks, a jealous opponent must have slipped the poison into his drink. Praise God for Ramon's prayer of surrender from a father's heart. Praise God for nudging me to read up on poisoning ahead of time and for guiding me to the strangest of antidotes. A reflection associated with this story comes from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 105. The infinite God, said Jesus, makes it your privilege to approach him by the name of Father. Understand all that this implies. No earthly parent ever pleaded so earnestly with an erring child as he who made you pleads with the transgressor. No human loving interest ever followed the impenitent with such tender invitations. God dwells in every abode. He hears every word that is spoken, listens to every prayer that is offered, tastes the sorrows and disappointments of every soul, regards the treatment that is given to father, mother, sister, friend and neighbour. He cares for our necessities and his love and mercy and grace are continually flowing to satisfy our need. Poisoned was written by John Holbrook of Adventist Frontier Missions, used by permission of Adventist Frontier Missions. Adventist Frontier Mission seeks to establish indigenous Seventh-day Adventist church planting movements with unreached people groups. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.